Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. We come to this wonderful, wonderful beatitude. We've had a wonderful time searching our heart on these. And this maybe could be the most searching of all the tests. Jesus said there in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Simple, but a profound statement. Blessed, happy is the man, happy is the woman, approved by God. He's giving his blessing to them on that man or woman who is pure in heart. And the reward, obviously, is they shall see God. Beloved, I think to be pure in heart is one of the greatest challenges facing believers in the 21st century. There is no question that this is a a great challenge to us. And certainly when you think of that word there on pure in heart, and you think of the word heart, there's a rich biblical presentation all the way through Scripture on our heart. Do you remember the psalmist said, In Psalm 23, do you remember when he asked that question? Who shall ascend until the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? I mean, who who can come into worship? Who can come up and come into the hill where the temple was and worship him? And who's going to be able to stand in his holy place? And the psalmist said, as you can see there, he who has clean hands... And a pure heart. The one who truly comes to worship this morning. The one who can come before the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly we come in our position of what he's done. But there's an act of worship there that you must have clean hands and a pure heart. And it says this. I don't think it's there on the screen. But Psalm 24, 5 says this. He will receive a blessing from the Lord. So the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, he will receive a blessing from the Lord. In fact, I really believe in my heart, can't tell for sure, that when Jesus gave this beatitude, he was thinking about Psalm 24. And so what was stated in the old is now stated in the new. The psalmist declared in 73.1, Truly God is good to Israel, and then he qualifies it, to those who are pure in hearts. So our Lord stated it, but the psalmist stated it in 73.1. Of course, you're well aware that the Pharisees, the Jewish leadership, had externalized religion. And do you remember when Jesus was in his earthly ministry, he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In fact, in contrast, do you remember what our Lord said when they said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of them all? And Jesus said to you and to that crowd that day, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the gospel writer of Mark added, with all your strength. But you're loving God with all of your heart. Do you remember when Samuel told, God told Samuel, or Samuel was to go and pick a new king. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at the appearance or on the height of his stature. This is after he was replacing Saul. He said, because I have, God said to Samuel, rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, 
but the Lord looks on the heart. This is the truth of Scripture. I always remember this Scripture as a young man, Second Chronicles 16, 9, that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to this person, to this man, to this woman, to those whose hearts is blameless towards him. And so what's fascinating as you come to the Beatitudes is the world says it's the wealthy. The world says it's the strong. The world says happy are those who are assertive. But Jesus says in his kingdom, those who are blessed are poor in spirit. Those who are in his kingdom are blessed, who are mourning over their sin and over the sins of others. Those who are hungering and thirsting after a righteousness. Those are the ones who are blessed, who are satisfied. Those who are merciful. Only those last week who are merciful will receive the mercy from God. And here, it's only those who are pure in heart who are blessed. Now remember as we drop into this beatitude in 5.8, that these are not, and I want to say this strongly, entrance requirements to get into the kingdom. This is not how one enters the kingdom. These are simply descriptions, but profound descriptions of the character and the blessing of those who are already in the kingdom. I just want to be clear on that. He preached in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and he told people to repent and these are the men and women who have repented and enter into his kingdom. And so as he began his earthly ministry, here is the king. Matthew presents him as king. Here is the manifesto of the king and here is how you, his kingdom citizens, should live. You should and are exhorted and you're blessed actually when you're pure in heart for they shall see God. Now let me search out this meaning of this beatitude, pure in heart, by asking four questions today, okay? Number one, what does it mean to be pure in heart? I mean, when he says blessed are the pure in heart, what does that mean? Secondly, what are the tests of a pure in heart? You might ask, how do I even know if I have a pure heart. Thirdly, what is the reward of a pure heart? Obviously, you have the ability to see God, but what does that mean to see God? And then maybe finally, and maybe the most searching is, how do I develop a pure heart? Okay, so let's dive into this. Number one, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Let me take the word heart first, and then I'll take the word pure. What does it mean to be pure in heart? First of all, whenever you see that phrase in Scripture, and you know this, The heart represents the total person. The heart is the real you. The heart, if you will, represents the motives, the thoughts, the attitudes of the entire person. It would be very fair to say that the heart is the center of your personality. That's what he, when he says love God with all your heart, Jesus, in fact, it's interesting because the word is cardia in the Greek, and obviously we get our Greek our our English term cardiac, if somebody had a cardiac arrest, they had a heart attack. And here it's just that term cardia or or in that sense. And it just, but it represents the heart and center of the personality. But let me take you just a little further than just making that statement. First, the heart involves the mind. It involves the mind. Do you remember this scripture in Proverbs 23, 7? As a man thinketh in his, what? heart, so is he. And so when you think about the mind biblically, that's in the NASB, it says that. As you think in your heart, 
so are you. In other words, you're some reflection of your thoughts or here in this expression of your mind. The heart biblically includes the mind. In fact, it says in Ephesians 4.18 about the unbeliever, they are darkened in their understanding. In other words, it's dark. Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. So there the heart is hard, and it's hard because they're darkened in their understanding and because of the ignorance that is in them. It involves, if you will, the mind. Jesus said on another occasion to his disciples and even to the Jewish leaders, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? And what he's saying is, why are you reasoning about these things in your mind? So number one, the heart involves the mind. Secondly, the heart involves your emotions. I, I think, remember when Jesus said, and you know it by heart in John 14, 1, let not your heart be what? Troubled, right? Troubled. In other words, he said that. He's going away. Let not your, what do you mean, let not your heart? The heart is a place not only that represents your mind, but it represents your emotions. In other words, their heart was troubled. Their emotions were afflicting them because of his soon departure. It says in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 2, 2, the king said regarding Nehemiah's countenance, this is nothing but sadness of heart. So there, the heart is not just represented in the mind, as I just said, but it's represented in here, the emotions. Nehemiah was sad for his people, sad for the nation of Israel. You remember in Romans 5, 1, how does hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. In other words, there's an emotional aspect to us. His love has been poured out in our hearts. We experience the love of God because the Spirit of God placed that there. So it involves the mind. It involves the emotion. Thirdly, the heart involves the will. It involves the will. It says in the ESV in Daniel 1.8 that Daniel resolved. But I like in the NASB in 1.8 it says of Daniel that he made up his mind. He made up his mind. In other words, the heart also in Scripture is engaging the will. It's how you make decisions. In fact, the unbeliever in Romans 2, 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, he said you are storing up um, wrath in the day of wrath. So it involves the will. So listen, when I say the center of the personality, you can begin to see this. It's the mind, it's the emotions, it's the will. Fourthly, it involves the conscience. You remember that great scripture in Hebrews that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts, discerning the intentions of the heart. So the heart involves the conscience. Listen, beloved, the heart then in biblical theology is the master controller, okay? It says this in Proverbs 4.23, we're exhorted there to keep your hearts. He's not talking about that, that organ inside of us. He's talking about the center of your life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, excuse me, for from it flow the springs of life. The heart is the source of your life, but we also know that the heart is the source of trouble. Certainly, if you've been in Christ for a little bit, or maybe you remember this one in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all else, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
In other words, it's the heart that's deceitful. In fact, I would say in our own day, I was talking in someone's home yesterday that's in our church, and the problem is not the school system. The problem isn't necessarily family, though the school system and family at large is in trouble. Really, the heart of the problem in our own society, in our own world, is the hearts. That's what's deceitful. That's what's deceitful above all else. You see the external actions, but it's really what's going on in the inside. Do you remember when the Lord was about to destroy the earth? He said the Lord saw the wickedness of man. That's external. It was great on the earth. And every intent in Genesis 6, 5 of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. You say, how do people commit evil? How do people commit murder? How do people commit crime? It comes out of the heart. In fact, is this not what Jesus said out of the heart? In Matthew 15, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. What a statement there. It comes out of the heart. Somebody murders someone externally, but where that comes from, it comes out of the heart. Adultery is committed, but it's committed in the heart. Sexual immorality is committed, but it's committed in the heart. The reason someone takes something or steals something is because theft first before it becomes a deed is in the heart. Why do people lie? Why do people bear false witness? Why do people slander? It comes out of the heart. And in the midst of this, Jesus is going to say, blessed are the pure in heart. And so there's the next scripture because you might be asking, and I don't want you to miss this, can the heart be changed? And the answer is yes, but only by God in salvation. Because the apostles preached, he made no distinction between us and them. Here's the key. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. And so even as we dedicated those two precious children today that they've been given physical life, somewhere as those children grow up, they're going to need to be born again. They're going to need to be regenerated. They're going to need to have their hearts cleansed. And it's cleansed not in a ceremony, not in a baptismal service. It's cleansed by what? Faith. That's how you get a new heart. So let me just say that a pure heart begins at salvation. And nobody has a pure heart without having first received a new heart in regeneration. This, as you'll see in the next verse, is the teaching of Scripture. He says, does the prophet Ezekiel, he declares, I will give you a new heart, God says, and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove, this is how it was stated, a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So a pure heart begins, does it not, in the doctrine of salvation. You receive when you come to Christ positional purity it begins there for a believer but it must go on and i want to emphasize this to you to practical purity of hearts that's what our lord is after here okay it's practical purity you say well scott why do you say that well because there's sometimes when i'm going through studying and i'm looking at this verse that some people say the sermon on the mount is impossible to attain In fact, the reason Jesus gave this is you can't do it. And they said that he gave it so you'd fall on your knees because you can't live with a pure heart and pure motives and a pure mind and a pure conscience. And they say that this was given that it might drive somebody to the Savior. But as I've told you all along, I don't believe that. 
I believe these are beatitudes for us today. That as you've already entered into the kingdom and are repentant, you now are to establish the type of heart that the Lord Jesus Christ wants. And what he wants here from you, look at the text again now in 5.8. He says, blessed are the pure in hearts. And so he adds this second term. And, and you say, what does that mean, Scott, to be pure in heart? Beloved, it means to be unmixed is what the thought is. It means that in your heart there is to be no impurities is the thought. Pure is described in biblical terminology. Sometimes they describe the wheat and it would be separated from the chaff, if you will. And that wheat that was separated from the chaff would be called katharizo. It was pure. In other words, you have wheat, but when it was separated, it became pure wheat. Metals, beloved, in the scripture often were refined. And they would heat those metals up and they would refine it until all the impurities were removed, is the thought. And then what you would have left was gold, but not just gold, you had what? You had pure gold. And beloved, this is what our Lord is saying to each of us. I'm after a heart that is unmixed in its devotion. I'm after a heart that is unmixed in its motives. In fact, what pure in heart is, is it's a singleness of hearts. He wants you to be focused. He wants you to be pure. And I I suppose I can compare it with a heart that is a double heart. Or someone who is double-minded. Or someone who is duplicit. Okay? And there's many people in our own valley that are duplicit. They, they claim one thing and then they live another thing. And what the Lord wants of us is He wants us to be pure in heart. He wants it to be unadulterated. He wants your heart to be unmixed. He wants your heart, here's the ideal of the word, to be cleansed. And to be pure means you have no mixture of any foreign element in it. Our Lord is saying, I'm after a heart that is unmixed in its devotion, unmixed in its motivation. That's pure. In fact, beloved, what it is, is I just tried to grapple with it. It is pure in heart is total honesty and integrity before God and man. It is a willingness to have every aspect of your life become visible. It is a singleness of devotion to God. And again, as compared to duplicity and double-mindedness, it is singular. The motives are unmixed. The thoughts are holy. The conscience is clean. The heart is free from deceit. It's free from pretense. Now, beloved, I don't believe that it means that we're perfect. None of us are perfect. But it does mean that you live your life with integrity. Jesus is saying to us, Blessed are those who are undivided. Blessed are those who are unmixed. Blessed are those who are wholly devoted to Christ. That's what the Lord desires is a heart that is pure. Beloved, you can imagine the implications of this when he said that in that day. Just compare this to the Jewish people and to the Jewish leaders specifically. He said, you hypocrites, woe to you. You look like a whitewashed tomb on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. 
You claim to have pious. You claim to be pious. You go into the synagogue. You offer the coin and the, and the, the trumpet faced uh, that was on the wall. They would put like a receptacle on the wall and they put loud coins in there that everybody would know. Then when they went around and fasted, they wanted everybody to know they fasted. They often blindfolded themselves. They often puckered their lips so that everyone would see, oh, aren't they spiritual? And then when they prayed, they would often stand and pray in the street corner and they would just pray publicly before people. And Jesus says, listen, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. He said, you hypocrites, you tithe the mint, the cumin, and the dill, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Their faith was a sham. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says, here's what's blessed. It's not to the man who thinks he's arrived or the woman. It's to that man who's poor in spirit. It's to that one who's mourning over their sin and over the sins of the nation. It's to that man or woman that is meek, not running over people, not you know, dictating to people and just showing strong arm, if you will. It's the people that are meek that inherit the earth. It's those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And in the, in the paradox of it, those are the people that are filled. He said that really the blessing belongs to the merciful, not to the cutthroat. It belongs to the people who don't seek revenge, but who show mercy. And then God demonstrates mercy to them. And here it's to those who are pure in heart. Would you look over just in the context here in Matthew 6, 1? Certainly you're aware of this. Beware of practicing your righteousness. And here's the key. Before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward for your father is in heaven. He said in verse 2, he says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. You say, well, why does he say sound no trumpet? Well, because I'm telling you, in, in extra-biblical literature, they did sound the trumpet. You see, what, what do you mean they sounded the trumpet? Listen, if you had a big offering, let's just pretend this was a trumpet. They were going to give a big offering. And so they'd come into the temple, and those receptacles were on the wall. And someone in the court would be, I don't know, I'm just making this up. You know, they would sound the trumpet. And, and as they sounded the trumpet, they know who gave the gift. And boy, if you gave a big gift, then, then aren't you spiritual? And then in walks a widow. And she gives a mite, which is a fraction of a penny. And God sees her. He doesn't see the people. But you know what they did? They practiced everything before men. Listen, let me just say to us, for, forget the Jewish leadership. When we come into this place, God's concerned for our heart. He says, beware of practicing it before men in order to be seen by them. You, you don't have any reward before your father. Look at prayer in chapter 6 and verse 5. You know this. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen, what? By others. Truly, I say to you, verse 5, they have received their reward. In other words, Jesus is just saying, if that's what they want, that's what they get. And you say, what did they do? They actually prayed on corners. Remember the tax collector and the publican? Remember the, the, the tax collector said, God, I thank you that I'm not like this trash of the earth, you know. He's in his prayer. And that's what these people uh, focused on, the externals. And he says, uh, don't be like them, for they love to stand and pray. Look at verse 6. But when you pray, you go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in what? Secret. Here, this is, 
heart religion, is it not, beloved? This is all about, go down to verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Like, you say, what do you mean, do not look look gloomy? Well, uh, they looked gloomy. You, you say they did? Oh, yeah, purposefully. They wanted to disfigure their face, discolor their face. They, wrote, they wore certain things. In fact, look at it, verse 16. They disfigured their faces, and their fasting may be seen by what? Others. Their whole religion was a fraud. Their whole religion was a sham. But listen, when we come into this place, he's looking at my heart, and he's looking at your heart. And so I ask you this morning, is your heart pure? And I just want to say to you, this indeed is a searching test, is it not? This is not easy. Are your motives pure as are mine? Do you have, as you come into this place, secret sins? You might ask, well, Scott, how do I know if I'm pure in heart? That's a good question. Thanks for asking. So secondly, what are the tests of a pure in heart? And I'm just going to be quick here. I'll stay right in the context because whenever you're interpreting Scripture, you should interpret Scripture with Scripture. And it's always best first before you go outside of the context to stay inside the context. You say, how could I know where the condition of my heart is? Let me give you a a test. Let me give you purity of heart at least by five standards, okay? Number one, the test of masters. The test of masters. Look over at 624. Certainly, this is filled out in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You know this. You cannot serve God in what? Money. Here's a test of your heart. Here's a t- who's, who's, your, who's your boss? Who's your master? Who's Lord of your life? You can't serve two. Jesus said there, you're going to, Love the one and you're going to hate the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other, but it can't be both. So listen, I'm asking you this morning, who owns you? Who owns your life? Who's the master controller of it? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Listen, this is a great way to test the purity of heart. Listen, I meet a ton of people in the Central Valley. I meet a ton of people who have a religious experience and I meet a ton of people who don't understand this scripture. I'm not trying to be polemic with you. I'm not trying to preach at you like it's one of you. Um, But I just meet a ton of people who grow up around it all their life and they think they're in it, but their heart is so far. Tell me about this. Is, Is he your Lord? Is he your master? James even was so just on it. Was he not? When we studied the book of James, when he said in 4, 4, you adulterous people, he said, you remember, do you not know that friendship with the world is what? It's hostility or enmity with God. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time. I always remember reading that book, Pilgrim's Progress, which I've told you that John Bunyan read over a hundred times. Excuse me, Charles Spurgeon read Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. Spurgeon did over a hundred times. But I always remember that character that Bunyan described in Pilgrim's Progress. He described him as Mr. Facing Both Ways. (laughs) that's some people. They have a foot in for the Lord and a foot in for the world. They got a foot in for him, but a foot in for a wrong master. And he described him as Mr. Facing both ways. So I just ask you, are you manifesting singleness of heart to God? Are you committing or are you committing spiritual adultery? Number one, there's the test of masters. 
But number two, there's the test of treasures, of treasures. Say, what do you mean the test of treasure? Look back in Matthew 6 and 19. You know this. Jesus went on in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then this, for where your treasure is, there will your heart, what, be also. Listen, I, wasn't, I, was, I didn't even plan to say this. Do you give to the Lord's work? Now, proportionately, consistently, you say, well, Scott, that's a little external. I don't know, is it? He, he's talking about laying up a treasure in heaven here where nothing can come in and destroy, but where your treasure is, he says, there will your heart be also. In other words, that which your treasure, your mind is focused on, your heart follows. And so, and if it's not just giving to the Lord's work, what is your treasure? It's just a searching, searching question. I mean, what do you do with that one? What do you do? Is this your passion? And I'm preaching to myself, Matthew 6, Seek ye first the what? The kingdom of God and his what? Righteousness. And, and don't think I'm preaching this to someone else. I'm preaching this to me and to you. And all of you should take inventory of your own heart, of mine. There's a test of masters. There's a test of treasures. Thirdly, there's a test of thoughts, a test of thoughts and This is also in the Sermon on the Mount. It says in 5, look back in Matthew 5. It's a little different way to come at it. But you have heard that it was said in 527 that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who, what? Looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his, what? In his heart. In other words, you don't need a screen. You don't need pornography. You've got this thing called your eyes and thoughts. And he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Certainly, that's what many people would subscribe to. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with a lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart. I mean, this is just searching, searching. This is a test of the purity of our heart. Number four, the test of words. The words, I'm just giving you a a way to examine it, me. And it's right there in chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You say, Scott, what do you mean by the words? What comes out of your mouth or out of my mouth comes out of your, what? Heart. The heart is the revealer of your words. If somebody were to do, say something, ah, that slipped, that word. Words don't slip. They reflect our heart. I always think when 
I grew up, there was a comedian. You remember that guy, Flip Wilson? And his famous line was, the devil, what? Made me do it. The devil doesn't make us do anything. Things that we do, things here in this text that we say come out of our heart and you'll be able to check the purity of heart by your words and maybe just let this one be the the guide. Let no unwholesome word, Ephesians 4.29, proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is as good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. Fifthly, there's another test, the test of masters, the test of treasures, the test of thoughts, the test of words, and here, the test of relationships. Relationships. You say, where's that? It's there in Matthew 5. Look at 23. If He says in 523, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Here's what Jesus said. You got a brother, you got a sister, they've got something at you. Jesus says this in 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go. He says, first be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. He just basically says, here's here's a real test. How's the test of your relationships? You're a believer. The Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven you a debt that you could never pay. And then someone sins against you and you withhold from them mercy or you withhold from them forgiveness. Jesus would say, listen, I'd rather have you get up right now instead of bringing your gift, instead of bringing your offering. I want you to go and I want you to to, to make it right. And I just think of this test of relationships maybe to expand that in 2 Corinthians 6.14, where at least I would put it this way uh, in a dating relationship by way of uh, explanation. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness and what fellowship has light with darkness. It's very telling uh, when a couple begins to date, if we called it that. We always used to say, don't date the dead. Don't date people who don't know the Lord. You need to run with the righteous. You remember Paul told Timothy, flee youthful passions. This is what he told him. He says, I want you to pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He said, Timothy, I don't want you to cater to the carnal. I don't want you to run with the carnal. I want you to run with the righteous. And I'm telling you, high school students and junior high students, that who you hang with, who you run with, will reveal the purity of your heart. You need to find the most godly young man. You need to find the most godly young woman that you can. You don't need to spend time, and I'm not saying to not witness to people, but when you get so close in your friendships with people that they begin to have a greater effect on you than you them, then you need to make sure that you're calling on the Lord with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So there's a test of relationships right here. Certainly you remember this is in the Scripture in Corinthians, that bad company corrupts what? Good morals. Who your friends are will tell you everything about yourself. In fact, the truth is, when somebody graduates from high school, their life is determined in the next two years, usually from 18 to 20. And one of the greatest tests is, is, is friendship. See, listen, a pure heart is to act without hypocrisy in relationships. You say, Pastor, this is searching I, I, I'm attempting to do this, not with perfection. Is there a reward for being pure in heart? My answer is yes. Look back at Matthew 5.8. It's one of the greatest statements, I think, in all of the Bible. In 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart. And here's the reward. For they shall see God. 
So here's the third question. What is the reward of a pure heart? You shall see God. Oh, that, is a, that is an unbelievable statement. I can't believe that. I mean, I believe it because it's in the scripture. But Jesus said that. He pronounced a blessing, a makarios, his approval on that man or woman with a pure heart. And here's the reward. They shall see God. It is a tremendous statement. It is a tremendous blessing. So just as the poor in spirit inherit or part of the kingdom of heaven, just as those who mourn over their sin and the sin of others are comforted by God, just as those who are the meek who actually get stabbed in the back and get run over and pushed over and passed over and delegated past, they actually receive the earth. Those who hunger and thirst will be satisfied by God. Those who are merciful will receive mercy and hear the pure in heart see God. Now, what in the world does that mean to see God? And let me just take a moment here. Does that mean that we can see God in this life? Or is the reward a future blessing? Does it really mean that in the glory of heaven, we will see God with the eye? I mean, is this objective? Is this visible is the thought? Or is this spiritual? And I would say that as with all the Beatitudes, the promise is partly fulfilled now. It's partly fulfilled in the present, but then it's fully realized in the future. I think we see God now with an eye of faith. I think we will see God with our physical eye in the future. You know, you have a whole rich biblical theology here, and I know that some of your minds and hearts will begin to think about this. What does it mean to see God? And, And by the way, when we start up small groups, which we'll tell you about small groups next week at 9 a.m., one of the purposes of small groups will be to Uh, apply the sermon that I'm preaching. This would be a great question on the ideal of what do you mean to see God? Do you remember when God took Moses and placed him in the cleft of the rock and Moses said, Lord, I just want to see you. I just want to see your glory. I want to see some of you. And God said to him, you cannot see my face. He said, for man shall not see me and what? Live. So on the one hand, you you can't see God. I'm going to show you part of me. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to let my glory pass by. You say, well, what's that? Well, his glory was his attributes. And so if you will, in the Hebrew language, God showed him the backside, but you can't see God and live. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God himself dwells in unapproachable light. He says there in the text, whom no one has ever seen or can see. No one has ever seen God, okay, in, in that sense. First Timothy 1.17, to the king of ages, immortal, and then what? He's invisible. We understand that language from John 4.24. God is a spirit. He doesn't have flesh and bones. He's a spirit, so he's immortal. He's invisible. In fact, John 1.18 said no one has ever seen God at any time, at any time. Peter, I think they're writing to the believers Maybe 30-some years after the death of Christ and his resurrection, though you have not seen him. And so it says in 1 John, when we studied that book together, that no one has ever seen God. So oh, you went a little, what are you talking about? Blessed are the pure in heart. And Jesus said emphatically, for they shall see God. Well, then you have other statements like this. And certainly you remember when, there, when Isaiah 
had the vision of God in the temple. And you remember that the foundations of the temple begin to shake and the voice came out and he's in a vision of God. And then the smoke there physically began to fill the temple. And Isaiah's response was, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen what? The king. Now, who did he see? Now, well, it says he saw the king, but we know from John, and I think it's John 12, 41, that the writer John said that he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. There, God the Father and God the Son, who he saw. Now, you, you can go check that in John 12. You say he saw a vision of God. Yes, and in John 12, 41, who he saw was Christ. But he saw the king, and of course, he saw the king a little bit, we would say, in that vision. In fact, it was Helen Keller, you know, who was deaf and blind and could not speak. She met, but when someone said to her, isn't it terrible to be blind? And to which she responded, she said, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. So, beloved, I would say to you, we do see God with the eye of faith. We see God and sense him in ways that the unbeliever never could. We see God when an atheist says, I've never experienced God. Sometimes we want to argue with him and I'll just say, no, you haven't. But not for the believer. We see God in nature. I drove up to Half Dome on Tuesday. You kidding me? I walked out yesterday. I saw a beautiful sunset. The sun looked like it was on fire. The unbeliever sees nothing. The unbeliever comprehends nothing. The unbeliever's mind is darkened, but the believer begins to see God. You see God in the events of history. You see him revealed in his word. You see him revealed in your life. You see him revealed in creation and circumstances. You see him revealed in the events of our life in terms of his sovereignty. And of course, you see God revealed in the person of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus said in John, I think it was 14, to doubting Thomas, whoever has seen me has seen what? The Father. In other words, Jesus Christ was the full-on radiance of the glory of the Father. One God and distinct persons, but whoever has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. And so there is a sense, beloved, when he says those who are pure in heart, they see God. You begin in the sense of knowing him. You experience him. You have a sense of feeling even his presence when he is near. You enjoy his presence. And listen, you'll know his presence and know his nearness and know his word when your heart is pure. And the purer your heart becomes, the greater you begin to see him with the eye of faith. In fact, I remember just I think in the last year I was in the snow. I was driving in the snow. I was in Canada and I was with uh, Shannon Hurley at a board meeting and Patty and I were driving this rental car, and I kept flicking the lights on, and we're down these paths in Canada, and it was dark, and it was snowing, and it was a storm, and Patty, these lights aren't on, and I just kept, and it's a rental car, and the year before, I got a ticket because I didn't have my lights on, so I'm trying to turn, it's not, it's a bad ticket, your lights aren't on, I, I didn't know that. I thought when I turned my car, my lights come on. And so now this second year, I'm in the snow, and, and I, I, I can't, I'd go out there, and I'd look at them. They're on, but I'm looking on the road. And what had happened is um, I didn't know what happened until finally I turned the rental car in. We were walking around kind of inspecting the car, and there was so much snow 
and soot, I don't know, just coming off the road that covered my headlights, that there was no way that the lights could beam out of it. And there's a sense here when stuff gets in our way, when sin gets in our way, it obscures our vision from God. But here Jesus is pronouncing that as you continue to purify your heart, it was cleansed at salvation, you'll continue to have a greater understanding of his glory. And then, beloved, let me say this. You'll sense that now because it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12 that we see in a mirror dimly, but one day we'll see what? Face to face. Listen, we're still in imperfect bodies. We still have imperfect hearts. But one day you're going to stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're going to see him face to face. Is this not what the Apostle John said in 3.2 when he said, I know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall, what? See him. Listen, I'm telling you, there's a day now that we perceive him. We understand God. We see God. That's what's great to have some older people in our flock. Older people who have walked with God. Older people who have been tested. Older people in the faith who have been proved. And now you go into some churches, and some churches, there's not anybody over 25 in that church. But it sure is cool, and it sure is hip. But you miss the ability of people who have walked with the Lord. But listen, you see him now in a mirror dimly, but then one day face to face. It says this in the book of Revelation in 22.3, no longer will there be anything accursed. He's talking about the glory of heaven. But the throne of God, do you see it on the next verse? But the throne of God, and watch this, and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him and they will see his, what? Face. Listen, I'm telling you, you say, what's the reward here? Can you picture the day when you stand, when you're before the throne as we sung and you're in the presence of God and he makes you totally clean and totally pure and you're standing face to face with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you behold him with the nails in his hands and the the holes at least in his hands and his feet and you're realizing there is your Messiah, there is your Redeemer. In fact, Job spoke of that in the previous verse when he said, I shall see God. Listen, one of my favorite writers, Lloyd-Jones, said this. He said, this is the most incredible thing that has ever been said to man, that you and I, such as we are, pressed with all the trouble we face daily, are going to see him face to face. Lloyd-Jones said, if we understood this, it would revolution our lives. Do you realize that a day is coming when you are going to see the blessed Savior face to face? He said, not in a glass darkly, but face to face. Surely the moment we grasp this, everything else pales into insignificance. You and I are going to spend our eternity in his glorious and eternal presence. This blessedness, Lloyd-Jones said, is inconceivable. It's beyond our imagination. And we're destined for this. You say, well, Scott, I, I, can I cultivate this? And my answer is... Yes, that's our fourth and final question. How do I develop a pure heart? I mean, that is a fair question. How do you do that? Do you go to a monastery, a monastery, 
Did you commit disciplines? Did you somehow get to some kind of holy hop that you entered into a state of what some call spiritual nirvana and you never sin anymore? Do you actually need a second work of grace in your life? Do you need a special prayer season? I mean, there's a bunch of things that are put out there today. But let me give you some biblical means of grace for you to develop a pure heart. Number one, you'll develop a pure heart. And this is how you can do it. And I can do it. By treasuring God's word in your heart. That's how you develop a pure heart. Do you remember this great scripture in Psalm 19 on the next verse? When it says this, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your what? Word. Listen, I don't care if you're young, young man or you're an old man, young woman or an old woman. You'll keep your way pure by keeping it and by guarding it according to your word. And look at the psalmist said, with my whole heart. I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. Listen, I promise you, as you treasure God's word in your heart, you'll keep your way pure. As you put and hide the word of God in your heart, it will keep you from sin. I remember writing years back in my son's Bible, I said, dear Johnny, I said, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the book. And that's about how it is. You're a young man in here. You want to be pure. You say it's impossible. I say, no, it's not impossible because here's a blessed promise. You'll, you'll, you'll keep it by keeping it according to your word. Do you remember the word of God in Hebrews 4.12 is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you want your thoughts and intentions pierced and purified because I do, then you're going to take the word of God, which is living and active. You're going to be in it, men and women. You're going to love it. You're going to devour it. You're going to open the book. It's not going to sit on your shelf Monday through Saturday to be pulled off to come in here. Can you imagine what Grace Church of the Valley would be if every man and every woman and every student in this place was devouring the book? See, I mean, this is what happens, I think, to generations. We used to say in business, and you've heard this before, The first generation um, earns it, the second generation enjoys it, and the third generation loses it. You can say the same thing about a family business as you would about your family walk with Christ. You sometimes, the first generation, they love it. They live on it because they were redeemed out of the world. The second generation begins to enjoy it, and the third generation just goes from it because it was never... Uh, in their heart. And the only way to pass truth on is to put it in the word. Hey, would you look at John 15 just one second? Let me make this clear to you and, and you'll understand what I mean. In John 15, there's a tremendous statement there on I am the true vine. Do you remember when Jesus said to the disciples, he said this in 15.3, he said, already you are what? Clean. You say, Scott, what do you mean already you are clean? Well, already, if we're in Christ, if we've been cleansed by faith, you've already been given a pure heart. You understand that. I don't want to miss that. You can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps if you don't know Christ and get a pure heart. You can't do a good deed. You can't do whatever you think you can do to gain a pure heart. You can only have it cleansed by faith. And so when he's talking to the disciples, he says, you're already clean. And I'm telling you, you're already clean if you're in Christ. He's forgiven you past, present, and future. He gave you a new heart. He changed out your heart of stone and gave you a a heart of flesh. He gave you a new heart. So you're already clean. 
So, but then go over just two chapters in John 17, 7, when he's in his high priestly prayer. And he says in 17, 7, excuse me, it's 17, 17. He said, sanctify them. In other words, make them holy in the truth. And your word is what? Truth. Listen, he's already made you holy, but you've got practical holiness. He's already given you a pure heart, but you need practical purity. And you'll do that by and through the truth. Secondly, we're almost done. You want to have a pure heart, you'll confess your sin. I, I, I mean, maybe this is the, the, the biggest takeaway that you need to have because it encouraged my heart. Because I look at my heart and I think, oh, Scott. <laughs> You know, I see things in my motives. I see things in my heart. And there's at times I just think, ah, Lord, Lord. And I just have to keep praying for a pure heart. And I just keep having to confess my sin. But is this not the psalmist in 1914 when he said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be what? Acceptable. But what is that? It's a prayer. He's praying, Lord, let the words of my mouth. In other words, your word, remember Psalm 19 that I read early? Your word is pure gold and it's above all gold. It's a treasure. But Lord, even though it searches me, I'm praying, let the words of my mouth. He's confessing. I want you to make my meditation pure. Psalm 26, 2, prove me, O Lord. Try me. He says, test my heart. That's a prayer. Listen, you're going to fall short. I'm going to fall short. But when you fall short, you not only treasure his word, but secondly, you confess your sin. Isn't this the psalmist when he says, you know, when I lie down, you know, when I rise up, you know, when there's a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, even before I speak the word, you know it all. And then at the very end of the psalm, even though God's omniscient, even though God's omnipresent, even though God's omnipotent, he says this in the next verse in Psalm 139. Isn't this it? Search me. Is this a prayer? And know me, try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be a grievous way in me, and lead me. It, it comes through prayer. It comes through prayer. Even though David sinned, he prayed after his sin, and he said, my heart is fixed, oh God, my heart is fixed. And remember, as Dom preached weeks ago, he said, create in me a clean, what? Heart. If you, if you need a, a clean heart, you need to confess your sin Because if you, can you repeat this with me? If you confess your sins, he's faithful and righteous and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's how you develop a pure heart by treasuring, by confessing. And finally, you do it by fixing, fixing your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is what? Fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't fix your eyes on stuff. Fix it on Him. Beloved, let me say this. There's head religion. Some people, it's all about what they know. There's also hand religion. It's all about what people do. And some acts and deeds is certainly appropriate. But what the Lord is after is a heart relationship where our hearts are in tune with His.